Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season six of the Great Woman Artist podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri Jewelry creates imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms, inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the light of Paradiso. Discover their range of gilded talismans online, perfect for the gifting season, with pieces for relatives, friends, and for you. Give the gift of strength and courage with their Leone medallion, or the gift of light and clarity with Alighieri's signature imperfect pearls. Alighieri packs every piece with a handwritten note and ships worldwide with love. For all of our London listeners, you can visit their newly opened showroom, join the team for a coffee or glass of Prosecco and meet their styling team who can offer one-to-one advice and help. Book in your appointment by emailing clients at alighieri.co.uk or walk in for a late night shopping on Thursdays open till 8.30pm. And don't forget, all Great Women Artists listeners will receive a 10% discount on all magical Alighieri jewellery with the code TGW at checkout online or by visiting the showroom. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015 which celebrates female artists on a daily basis ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the staggeringly brilliant and pioneering artist, Bisa Butler. One of the leading artists working today, Butler uses the medium of textile for her vivid and vibrant portraits of subjects that weave personal and historical narratives of black life. From integrating members of her own family derived from old photographs to immortalising celebrated figures from Chadwick Boseman to Frederick Douglass or those unknown from Depression era photographs, Butler's oeuvre aims to, in her words, tell the story, the African-American side of the American life. Born and raised in New Jersey, where she still resides today, Butler studied for her BA at the prestigious Howard University, where she was taught under the Afrocoba Group, and for an MA at Montclair State University. It was here where she first began using the medium of textiles after assembling together a portrait quilt for her grandmother. Working as a high school art teacher for more than a decade, Butler worked on her fibre creations in school holidays and at the weekend, exhibiting at churches and community centres. And it is this medium for which she has come to pioneer, not only by integrating portraits in such meticulous and beautiful ways, but by fusing a range of fabrics from her father's homeland of Ghana, batiks from Nigeria and prints from South Africa. But in the last few years, Butler's rise has been astronomical. 
Within just a few years, she has had solo exhibitions at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Katona Museum of Art, made two covers for Time magazine as well as a cover for New York magazine featuring Questlove. And for those in Los Angeles, her work is currently and prominently on view at LACMA's hotly anticipated exhibition, Black American Portraits. Bisa Butler, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing fabulous. Thank you, Katie, for that amazing introduction. (laughs) I don't think I've ever had one put quite so eloquently, and I thank you very much. And I'm so happy to be here. I listen to the show all the time while I'm sewing, while I'm working. You've kept me company on many a grueling night, so um, thank you. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, the feelings mutual, your work has stimulated me for so long and I thank you for that. So I have been such a fan of yours for so long. I've honestly never witnessed portraits with such joy, such personality, dignity, deeply psychological emotion and just consideration and care. The way that you stitch these figures together through a myriad of fabrics is just extraordinary. I know it can take you up to 2000 hours for a single portrait and you really see that not just in the time, but the thought. It's like you bring these people back with such vivid personalities. And I love what you say in your artist statement. I create portraits of people that include clues of their inner thoughts, their heritage, their actual emotions, and even their future. I represent all my figures with dignity and regal opulence because that is my actual perspective of humanity. So I want to start by asking you, what is it that you want to bring out in your subjects when you are stitching together these lives? I think it's my own longing for those who have gone on before me that sort of spurred this whole thing. Like originally it was my grandmother who was elderly and ill and I wanted to bring her something like an image of happiness of her wedding day and how she felt at that moment. And then as I moved into doing portraits of people I didn't know, I would find them in the National Archives and there was this dignified photo of this beautiful woman reading a book And she had on like a Victorian style dress, a bouffant hat, and she's reading a small book on a porch. She's a black woman. Her name was like Fanny and it said Negro washerwoman. But the way she was portrayed, you would think that she was some grand dame. And this was a staged photo. So these are the clothes that she put on that day. She wanted that little book in the photo. And I thought about how what a reduction that was just to call her Negro washerwoman. Her inner self was much grander and and much greater than what life could say she could be at that time, but who she sees herself as and how she wants to be remembered. How do any of us want to be portraitized? And so it made me think about her, Fanny, as a woman. Yeah, how incredible. And then, so do you sort of even imagine these personalities in a way? I do. I mean, you can read a photo. I was a high school teacher and they had a specific lesson one day where they had the students look at a portrait, I think early 19th century. And so they were all allowed to like, just write down all these observations. What can you tell about this? And we do that all the time with portraits, let's say of like Napoleon or Queen Elizabeth. You look at the pose, you look at her little dog, and they're deliberately put there to betray like how grand or her great or their religion. And so I'm looking at black and white photos that were taken by documentary photographers. So they're not always super staged. It might just be like, hey, can I take your picture? But in that moment, I'm looking at what are their eyes like speaking to me? 
I found another photo of a black man, and I think he was in Alabama, just sitting in a corner somewhere. He had a, like a straw boater hat, and it was ripped and frayed, and he had a patch on his knee. But this man's legs were crossed in the most elegant way, and he was tapping his lip and looking at the photographer like, hmm. <laughs> and I thought, like, this man is really a thinker. So it started getting me in the mode of, I don't know him, but I see this natural elegance and grace. And I see that he's thinking about who is this person who's taking the photo. And then the way I look at it is he's also looking at us. Like, who are you to be judging me? I may have a patch on my pants, but you have no idea who I am. So I called it, I am not your Negro, because that was taken in the 1940s. And it did say Negro man, but it was like, no, I'm not your Negro. I'm a person. I'm a human being. And that was the title of James Baldwin's essay and documentary that he was working on before he passed away. And then Raoul Peck, he, he produced it and was able to make this beautiful portrait of James Baldwin and why he said the things he did and why he lived in Europe, because it was hard for him to be suppressed and live as a philosopher, a writer, as a homosexual in Europe at that time. So I looked at this man and I just felt like he could be a great philosopher. We don't know. And so I felt like that piece was sort of the homage to the Black expatriates and the philosophers and the creatives who just were not allowed to lead that life. So when I did my version, I included little clues of that on him, like his pants, you'll see um, planes on them. And there's little things that say Lagos, Paris, London. Totally. And to bring these people back with such dignity, such vibrancy, such personality as well. I mean, it's so fascinating that you draw from all these different photographs. I mean, what draws you to an image? I think mostly it's the gaze. If you look at my photos, a lot of times the eyes are looking directly at you because I'm looking for that human connection to somebody who was gone. And the only thing I have is the photo. So if they're looking away from me, there's a bit of a disconnect. And so I feel like it's a two-way conversation between me and my inner self, but then also the spirit of that person. So I'm trying to like glean something from that. And it's mostly the gaze that grabs me. I did a portrait of Frederick Douglass. He was an extremely powerful abolitionist. But I always thought of him as this old guy with his woolly hair. And, <laughs> you know, he was at least, I don't know, 70 plus in a lot of the photos. But I found a photo of him as a young man. And it was that gaze. He was looking, arresting. And then that look on his face, so fierce and so stern, but he was young in the photo I saw. And so I didn't realize also at the time that Frederick Douglass had freed himself from bondage that early on to be in his late 20s. And that was at the very beginning of photography. So for him to have this photo, it's not an easy thing for him to get. And then what I read about him at that time is he was still a fugitive. He had to go to, I think, Scotland and he, they were able to like petition for his freedom legally. But when that photo was taken, he still wasn't. But any black person shouldn't look a white person in the eye. If you do, you better be deferential. You better look down. You better smile and appear like a, a happy slave. 
So by him having that fierce look, it was such a provocation. And it was a demand to say, like, I'm a human being. You cannot cast me aside like a piece of cattle. So I understood why he had to put so much into that photo. And to look at it, you really can't look away. Even after all these hundreds of years, that energy of Frederick Douglass is still there demanding. Yeah, this is the storm, the whirlwind and the earthquake, right? Exactly. I mean, that work is just extraordinary in the way that you also blow them up to the size of kind of almost these gilded tapestries. I love the kind of grandeur of them and the demand to be seen. And this work is just so electric. I mean, every aspect, and I love the detail that you put in it. It's sort of effervescent in the way that it brings them alive. Yeah, yeah. I love colour. <laughs> I love, I'm so happy that tell. you noticed it. <laughs> and that you see that energy because I was born in the 70s, so... <laughs> I was surrounded by polyester fluorescence and neon and the era of color TV yeah, and color movies. And, and then my father's family is from Ghana, West Africa. So if you've ever been to Africa, or you don't even have to go to Africa, just go in any neighborhood where there's lots of African women and you see these brightly colored cloths that they're wearing. So I'm used to seeing that intense, bright vibrancy. So I'm trying to like use that fabric in order for me to express the life that I see in this person's photo. And as a spectator as well, you can't help but feel so many different things. You feel joy, you just feel so much emotion, but you also feel power. These people, I mean, just the space that you give them as well. They're kind of like modern day tapestries, semi-gods, but also human, which actually I think is so important. There's such a sort of raw intimacy between us as spectator and the work as well. I mean, how do you want people to feel when they're confronted with your work? I love that, that you were saying about the intimacy and that they're human, because unfortunately, some things still remain from the colonial era and the remnants of slavery and how our countries were formed. Well, not only, but then the economy sustained for hundreds of years on the backs of Black people. And I don't believe that those people who founded slavery really believed that Black people were not human, but they wanted to make a rhetoric in order to justify the dehumanization. So that's why it had to be so strict don't look at me, don't smile, you can't read, you can't know your African name, you can't know your history, you can't be around anybody who you knew or loved. Like Those are things done to somebody who you know good and well is human and has a soul and feelings and family and love and intelligence. And unfortunately, though, those remnants remain. And some people don't think of Black people as equal. And we see that played out in the news constantly. So I'm making these portraits because I think these people are beautiful. I'm like, these are, look at this person. Like, how do you just write this person off as Negro man in Alabama? Like, what, don't you see this? So I'm making it big and not huge, but like life side. This is a man one-on-one. -on -one. And then I want that direct gaze. So he's like confronting, or they all are confronting. You have to recognize that I'm a person just like you. And then 
I want people to be able to see different myriads of emotions. Somebody could be shy. Not everybody needs to be bold. Like there are some people who are very introverted or there are some people who are more vulnerable. And all those ranges of humanity need to be present. So I want people to do just like you said when you look at my work, to think, I feel like I'm looking at a person, like a real person. And then maybe that will also impact their own interactions during the day. Totally, totally. I mean, there's such gifts to the world, your works as well. Thank you. But I mean, what draws you to the medium of textiles as well? I mean, what do you think is the power of using textiles? Oh my gosh. I feel (laughs) like, (laughs) well, as an artist, some people feel intimidated by art. They feel like they can't go in a gallery. They feel like they shouldn't ask anything. They don't touch, don't speak too loud, don't walk too fast. Sometimes they're like, oh, I don't know anything about art. I'm not intelligent enough to speak on this piece. But fibers, cloth, we all have it. We all wear it from the moment we get up in the morning. I mean, you're sleeping on sheets, but you're familiar with the materials. And so I feel like quilters especially, we know what these things are. You already have the materials in your own home. You've seen them your whole life. So you feel like that barrier is sort of missing. And then quilts were made for people to stay warm. So you also, there's this thing of comfort. And then a lot of people, they say, like, my grandmother sewed or my mother sewed. So it reminds you of home and like that maternal care. So I feel like the quilt arts have this loving part to them that makes people like think about their own life. So I feel like I have an unfair advantage there because I'm making this portrait, but then I'm also like reminding you of the love that you were surrounded with, or maybe even the love that you wanted to have. I love this idea that we all get up in the morning and we're bundled in cloth and actually how there is something kind of hugging us every single morning and how that carries us through throughout our day, throughout our life. We have clothes that envelop us in a way that a painting can't. (laughs) No. And then you understand the cloths. If I use black velvet in the hair of my subjects, you know what velvet feels like. It's opulent. It's rich. And you also know where people wear velvet. They wear it to events. Mm. One of my friends gave me a whole bag of her grandmother's handkerchiefs. Wow. Some of them were hand-sewn lace. I think she came here right after World War II. So a lot of them were made in Poland or Germany. So if I use that in a piece, it's going to make you think of that delicacy of another time. You'll recognize that sort of hand-stitched lace. So all of these fabrics, if I use burlap or denim or wool, each one carries with it. When do you wear that type of cloth? What is it used for? So we're reading into it. So if I want to show that this man from Alabama is elegant, then I'm going to use more elegant fabrics. And I don't even have to say or write in the title, I want you to think this man is elegant. You're already gleaning that. Yeah. And how amazing also that these materials have so many layers of stories and the rich history of the people who carried around those handkerchiefs and where they have been and what those people have seen and what those handkerchiefs have seen. Right. Where they have been. Yeah. There's a great advantage to printed fabric 
probably all, but I haven't studied all, but the African fabrics have specific names and folktales that are attached to them. This fabric that I'm wearing, it looks like a sun, you see? (gasps) And it has like palms over it. So in different parts of Africa, the women name things. Now, I don't know why they came up with this one for this one, but they called it grotto. A grotto is, um, you're saying that my husband is fat and he's rich. (laughs) So if I'm wearing this, I'm bragging that because the richness, he's fat because he's got money. He's opulent. He can afford to like eat lobster in the morning or whatever. <laughs> like amazing, what a life! <laughs> so if I put grotto on that woman, the piece I was speaking about, who's reading a book, yeah, she has that Victorian dress and she's got that beautiful hat because her husband is rich. Yeah, and then there's another fabric that's called Janito. And that means that you have a young lover who's like young and fit. He's probably broke. (laughs) Amazing. Well, you know, one or the other is perfect for me. (laughs) One or the other. You've got positives on each side. So I love that these fabrics can like give that. If I put Janito on the woman, not all of us, you know, unless you're African and you're from there, we're not going to know that colloquialism. I'm like giving that nod to African people like, this is for you. Yeah. And I know you get that I'm saying something about her man and her life. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But Bisa, I'd love to go back to your beginnings as well and to see where this all began. I mean, you were born in Orange in New Jersey. You were the youngest of four children. I mean, tell me about your childhood and family. I mean, was art always present in your life when you were growing up? I think that art was present in my life because of my African side of the family, the art that surrounds you was very utilitarian. Yeah. So when we had salad, they might bust out with this beautiful sculpted bowl. Yeah. And I saw art more as useful, but not, I would say, like art so much up, up on the walls. I do remember my father had a piece of kente cloth wow. framed and on the wall. So that was for him like a remembrance of homeland. And my mother grew up in Morocco. My grandfather was a U.S. emissary. So she, through the 50s and 60s, was in Morocco. But I grew up watching my mother and them sewed because they were just a regular middle-class Black family thrust into this world of ambassadors and diplomats and kings. Yeah. And they needed to dress appropriately. Influenced by the French, they would look at Christian Dior and Yves Saint Laurent in oh old magazines like Marie Claire, and they would reproduce those. Your family's pictures must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> They're pretty amazing, I must say. <laughs> so I grew up watching them in the States now, still sewing. Now it's the 80s. So whenever we had a fancy event, it was like, I'm not going to Macy's. I'm, I'm, I had the nerve, my prom dress. I looked in a Vogue and picked out a dress. I wanted my mother to make that dress for me. And she did. She had to get this red silk from Edison. It's an area where there's a lot of South Asian Indian people. And she got this red silk that usually is used for saris. And then it had a scalloped edge. She had to get fishing wire from the hardware store. And she had to sew it into the hem and you had to roll it so that it could bend and look scalloped like it was in the magazine. So I watched my mother make things like that. 
And so I always knew that craftsmanship was really important. Using fine materials, you have to have the right materials. Mm. And when I started quilting, they gave me their remnants. I was in school. I couldn't afford to buy fabric. And so they were like, oh, just use these. And we have all these remnants. So that my quilts, you'll see a lot of dressmakers' fabrics in them. And then also I did mention I grew up in the 70s. So the 70s was a whole nother thing. So I grew up in an environment where my mother was seeking more than what was offered. And she was very open like that and exposing and encouraging us when she saw me making little things. So the environment at home was very much like make more than what is available to you. Be creative. And my father was a college president. So he's very type A, very like, get a job, pay your bills. But I was the youngest, so he was more indulgent with me. But I mean, then between 1991 and 1995, you attended Howard University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in America. You were taught under the Afrikoba. Also, this university includes alumni such as Lois Mayu Jones, Elizabeth Catlett, both of whom we've discussed in the podcast. But I mean, how was your experience there? And am I right in thinking that you actually started with painting at this point? Yeah, I thought, what, well, what is an artist? I knew I was really good at drawing and I always loved art class. And when I got to Howard, Fibers wasn't an option. And also, I didn't even consider it. I thought I could be a fashion designer or be an artist. I didn't think that an artist can use fabric at all. And so I chose painting because I was like, okay, I can paint. And Howard is known for its social activism. And our professors were always imparting on us that you're lucky to be here in college. Most of our parents at that time, they did go to college. A lot of my classmates, grandparents did not. So they always said to us, you're lucky to be here and you have a responsibility to help. We all see that now, me and you. Like There's a lot of people who are suffering in the world. So you can't just sit in the ivory tower and it's like, well, I'm fine, but the rest of the world is burning. Yeah because we're not going to make it if we're not all together. Totally. And so they really would impart on us, like, that was a philosophy from the Harlem Renaissance and W.E.B. Du Bois, The Talented Tent. You kids go to college, then you go back home, and you disseminate information and education. And as an artist, we had this visual representation. They didn't say we had to do this, first of all, but they said that this is what they did in the 60s when people looked at their art Black people, they should see themselves in it. They should feel proud of being Black. So they didn't so much say, you have to do this, but it was strongly suggested that you use your art to help Black people, even if it's just for them to see themselves in it and say, like, I feel good because I'm Black. Totally. And do you think it was that also that attracted you to working with the figure and figuration? Because I know there's this fantastic early portrait of yours with the blue headscarf. Already you've got that patterning in. I mean, it's so interesting seeing those early works because you can really see that trajectory almost. Yes. I, I think that was always sort of my thing. I was so interested in portraits. Yeah. I actually remember a professor of mine asking me, like, why portraits? Yeah. And I remember having to like explain in front of the class because people in the 90s, a lot of the artists 
and the art that was being leaned towards was more non-figurative, um, more going into abstraction and conceptual. And here I was like rigidly going the <laughs> other direction. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was um, It was just interesting. I remember that class and one student saying, a portrait doesn't have to be a face. It can be a portrait of things or ideas. And I remember thinking like, what? No, <laughs> portrait is a face. So <laughs> no, but I did, I, I was able to like sort of expand in my own self, what is a portrait? But then I had to, be true to what is attractive to me, and that's the human experience. And my one professor who was really helpful to me, Al Smith, I remember him telling me I should take a class in anatomy because I was having troubles working with the figure and getting it to be in the right space and the hands. He was talking about certain muscles in the body and how, you know, if somebody's more tense, how they hold their body, if they're more loose limbed but you have to be able to understand the joints and the tendons and where certain muscles are in the body in order to portray that properly. So I did some of that while I was at Howard and that stuck with me to this day. Yeah, totally. And then how did you then make the move from painting to quilting and why? And I mean, how did it feel? Oh man, that's one of my favorite moments that I was in grad school. I decided I would be an art teacher. I was a mom by this time. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. I can be immersed in art. I can be with my children. The money was decent, all these things. But at Montclair State, they said that you had to take fibers and you had to take metalworking in order to, I couldn't even be in the art education program because for them, I hadn't fulfilled the undergraduate requirements. And I took fibers. My first day in the fiber studio I remember it was a warm, sunny day, and there were all these women sitting around a big table. And not only that, the materials in the room, instead of stacks of books, like in the library when you walk in the stacks, they had a whole room, huge room. The stacks were just spools of yarn of all different colors and textures and and sizes. You must have been in heaven. (laughs) I was in heaven. I was like, what is this place? Like, You found your home. (laughs) It was home. It was like this warm, loving environment that I needed. And I felt supported there. And we were, people were weaving in the back of the room. You could hear them. And it's a quiet sort of art, first of all. And all the materials are soft. And here I am like a young mother, like trying to make it. So I needed that nurturing environment. And then when we got to the quilt, she had us do a little oven mitt size quilt and she was saying, okay, these are quilts and you can do it abstract style, geometric. Then she showed us like African-American improvisational quilts. And she showed us an artist who did a portrait quilt. And so I made a portrait and it was was that moment that I was like, first of all, (laughs) because I had thought I couldn't make art anymore as a young mom. Why? When I was pregnant, I couldn't smell the um, linseed and the turpentine. And there are certain paints, phthalo blue and cadmium, they're toxic and it would make me sick. Yeah. So I couldn't even open a cap of paint. So you were literally refrained from painting. Right. Wow. Right. And that was my last year at Howard where I was struggling to like finish. Mm. 
And I had to finish the degree. So in order to paint, I was so ill. And that same professor, Al Smith, told me, why don't you start working with collage? You dress all funky. I had made all these clothes. And he was like, use your fabrics in your work. And then he had us do some weaving. So I was gluing fabric at Howard. But when I got to Montclair State, making that portrait meant I could finally do my art again with my kids. I didn't have enough money to have a separate art studio. Yeah. So even if I was to paint, my little one, she was always putting things in her mouth. I mean, and one time she got a hold of a canister of glitter. Oh my God. She, she ate that whole thing. <laughs> she ate it. That's so stressful. But I could not have my paints around. So the door was back open. And part of the assignment, our professor, she made us go to the Whitney in New York. But the quilts of G's Ben went there. It was 2004. And I saw these quilts up on the wall. And so now already I wanted to make quilts. And I was like, oh, I can be a professional quilter. That's a thing. And I could have my work in museums. And that's, I always stuck to that since then, that I wanted to be a professional artist who exhibited in museums and galleries and exhibit my quilted artworks in those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, you were a teacher for a decade, a high school teacher, which is incredible. And I'd love to know about this time in your life. I mean, obviously you were carrying on your quilting work at the weekends and during holidays, but also what was it about teaching that you were drawn to and what did teaching teach you in a way? I felt like teaching taught me to be a better human being at first, when I get went in, I had all my lessons and everything I wanted to do. I had it all set up. I had worked out the whole curriculum. <laughs> and then the first day was total madness <laughs> and chaos. That's the principal called me into her office and was like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not going to get it. And that's not what they teach you in grad school. It's not about managing a classroom. It's all about the curriculum. I had to go back and relearn the rudimentary basics of like how to control a classroom. And so that taught me about just human beings. I started realizing like teaching is not the same thing as just making art because the kids are looking at you as the example and and they're in high school, yes, but they're still children. They need to know how do you expect them to act here? How do you want them to speak to you and speak to each other? So I learned like how to communicate more effectively. Let's establish just that we all have mutual respect for each other. They like when you, all of us do, when you say like, hey, why don't you show me how to do it? And also admitting to your students that vulnerability. I always showed them my work. You know, I'm a quilter and I can follow directions of sculpting, but I'm not a sculptor. So if you know something more Why don't you show us during the demonstration? It helped me have more respect for all people. You cannot teach a student or a person anything if you don't think that they're worth your while. So I had to learn that I have to love my students and care about them, even when they were really bad. There's a reason. Why are they being like that? And what can I do to help this situation? Totally. 
it's about mutual respect, isn't it? But I think you see that in your work as well. But I mean, you just mentioned you were still doing your quilting work at this time. I mean, what were you making and were you trying to exhibit at that time? I mean, what sort of career did you want at that moment? I still had this idea that I would be a full-time artist one day. That was like the dream. I want to be a full-time artist. So while I was teaching, I was working on portraits, but they would be smaller. Yeah, I would always say, let's work on this for a couple hours and then work on my lesson plan. And I took teaching really seriously. I would always reflect on the day, like what worked, what didn't work. And it's not just the lesson, but each kid. Mm. So I always had a limited time to work. Even on the weekend, I had my own children. Thank God my <laughs> husband could like step in, right? But it was just, it would be mostly at two to, two to three hour intervals if I'm lucky. But the perseverance, I think I learned that in the classroom. Because if you have a kid who every day comes in and puts their head down and rolls their eyes and says that he hates your class, you have to persevere because you have to win over this kid. If I can't teach this kid, then I feel like I failed as a person, as a teacher, because I didn't get through to him that artist for everybody. So I would always be reflecting on what can I do that's more. And it would take a long time. And then when I would have those breakthroughs, it could be a couple months later. One time I took the kids on a trip to New York to the Met. I talked to them ahead of time. This is what you'll see. This is the behavior, again, that's expected of you at the Met. We went to the Met in the MoMA. One kid asked, do you have any Jean-Michel Basquiat? And they didn't have any, not on view. And my kids felt good. Like they felt empowered. Like we've got one up on you because the docent was like, oh, like uh, we don't have one. And the kids were like, you don't? What? <laughs> What's with the MoMA? Like, it is not giving. <laughs> yeah, this is not modern art, seriously. <laughs> that kid who was I was having an issue with felt good that day. And then on the way back, right before we left, the kid gave me a hug and he was like, thanks so much, Miss B. Because even though we only lived 30 minutes from New York, he had not been wow. to New York. Yeah. He felt happy and proud of himself and of us. And after that, I never had another issue with that kid. He wanted to sit right next to me and do his project there. And he felt that I cared about them. And I think the perseverance helped me in my life, in my career, be able to like be patient. Mm. Because when I first started trying to exhibit my works, so many people told me, I don't know what this is because this is not African-American quilting. African-American quilts should be improvisational. And then here I come with these portraits. I've had respected and well-known like art dealers tell me that they don't see a place for me in the art world. I remember one person telling me that they were not even certain if fiber artists were artists at all. It was just like quilts are craft. They're women's work. They're low art. They're not high art or fine art. And even if we're accepting quilts as art, your quilts don't look right. It was rough. But that perseverance and me also 
maybe not being on the scene. It was like, well, I'm making these portraits of my friends and family. I'm going to keep at it and I'm going to keep trying, working slowly but surely, little by little, because the same thing that I was doing in the classroom, working on my students little by little to like not only win them over, but get them to take ownership and then get them to start loving art and creating. What a lesson in life that is, though, as well. But also the fact that, you know, Visa, the fact that you are now the pioneer of this portrait quilt, and it's incredible. And also for any artist listening, that if, if it doesn't exist, then make it, you know, create that gap. Yeah. But I mean, then in 2017, you got a solo show. And I mean, the last few years have been astronomical. I mean, it's just been incredible. How has it been since 2017 and, and how did it happen? I mean, yeah. Also, I don't want to discount that during that time when I was teaching, I was exhibiting in local galleries and Black-owned galleries who have smaller venues. So my work was getting out there, but I would say mostly amongst African-American people. There were people of other races and nationalities who bought my artwork, but there was a big, and still is, a big segregation in the art world. So you would have to go to like Art Fair 154. You would have to go to, at the time, it was the Black Arts Festival that was in New York at the Puck Building. You had to go there and find the Black art. So I had galleries like Richard Beavers and Garbo Hearn and Thelma Harris who exhibited my work and sold my work and promoted me and helped me. But it wasn't enough that I could quit teaching. Also my time, so if I can't quit my job, I can't make big pieces. They're small, smaller market, smaller pieces, smaller amount of money. Everything was really gradual. So by the time I got signed to a more mainstream gallery in 2017, it's remarkable, but then also sad when you think it's because the gallery, I'm just going to say, I think it was because it wasn't black owned and the gallery had a, an opening into another art market. And when I say mainstream art market, it means like predominantly white art market. So then I could go to Art Basel, but going with a black owned gallery, a smaller gallery, they can't afford the booth. Those uh, fairs, you have to get, I think it's juried in, and it's a jury of your art peers who say if you can even buy the booth, but if your art peers don't know this little black gallery, you're not getting in. And neither are any of your black artists. So 2017, it like I was burst on the scene because I like broke that color barrier. And I don't want to take credit for saying like I'm the pioneer of portrait quilts because there are so many dope quilt artists, like black and white. Because there's two forms of segregation here. It's like the quilters are segregated, you're women. Then the black artists are segregated. You can try to get through. And like it's that perseverance, but you have to try. It's not a, an open door. You have to actually work at it as if you're trying to desegregate a school. And then there's um, there's economic, like that talented tent, it's educational hierarchies. Because I went to art school, because I have a degree and I come from people who have degrees, I never had that thing that I don't belong here. I always felt like I belonged. It just was me trying to get there. 
And 2017, by me working with a gallery that was not Black-owned, they had a different cachet and they had a different market. And so then it became like, wow, where did you come from? It's like Jackie Robinson going from the Negro Leagues to playing for the Dodgers. So I used to always kind of correct people and you, not you. I mean, I'm just saying some people would say that I was a new artist because they would say emerging. They didn't understand that I had been working all along and exhibiting. It was like, where did you come from? But this is that time, right, in the world where there's been an acknowledgement that some people can be privileged because of their skin color. And some others, on the other hand, can be underprivileged because of that. But they can be unwritten rules. So I hope that other artists who are coming up, just like when I saw those quilts on the wall at, at the Whitney, will feel like I can do that because Bisa is there. Totally, totally. In recent years, I guess some of the work has just been absolutely electric. I mean, one of my favorite is Southside Sunday Morning from 2018. I mean, this just incredible. I mean, it's like the, what we were talking about with the Frederick Douglass portrait earlier, just so vibrant, these five boys. It's based on a photograph from the Depression era. I mean, tell me about this work. That piece was actually one of the first artworks that I made that was like a grand scale. I was still teaching and I heard that there would be an opportunity for me to exhibit my work at Expo Chicago with the gallery. I was like, okay, I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> I really wanted to like, I knew that this was a big art market and I would be on the scene. And I looked at pictures. I always do research on my teacher side. And I saw that big hall at the Navy Pier with these hundreds of booths. And I was like, okay, how am I going to be noticed in this city? <laughs> hundreds of galleries and then hundreds of artists from all over the world. And then there was, it was twofold, though, because I'm aware of myself as a Black woman from New Jersey coming into Chicago. Sometimes we have regional prejudices, and I wanted the Black people of Chicago to know that I was here for them. And like, I'm one with you. And our struggle is the same. And I wanted to make sure that the people of Chicago... I'm here as a representative, but we're all the same and I see you and I respect you. So that photo by Russell Lee, it was taken on Easter morning in the south side of Chicago and the boys look so good, you know? <laughs> so good. They're impeccable. One boy has his foot up on this beautiful car. <laughs> and the hat. <laughs> and the hat. You could see the soles of his shoes are clean. His socks are striped. One little boy had this flower with this string on it. And I looked that up. It's a special little contraption. It connects to his hat. You know, they call Chicago the Windy City. So if the hat blows off, it stays attached by this little cord. Wow. But the cord has a flower. So even that was dapper. And I love that it showed how well cared for. This is the community that I'm familiar with the Black middle class or the Black working class or the working poor, you care and love your children. You put on your Sunday best. Like we're trying our best. Yes. And their best look damn good. <laughs> and I wanted to portray that in that piece. 
And I also thought about my students and I thought about how so many presumptions are made of black, black kids. And so I really wanted to pay attention to each boy in my piece. You'll see has one has more red and orange in his skin. One is more blue and green. The other one is purple and pink. But I wanted people to see them as individuals. It's not just one boy represent. They're not all looking the same. They don't all think the same. They're friends, but they're individuals. So I deliberately enhanced their features and I'm going to say their skin color because when we look at people, we say like, you're white, I'm black, but you're not white like this paper and I'm not black like tar. We have more similarities than differences. We all have this red blood flowing through our skin. So I feel like my pieces, they're super day glow, but I feel like those colors exist in us. I love how color can emanate personality. And actually, what I love about these boys is they're all just like you say, they're all these different multifaceted people. But I mean, and then you get to this incredible work called To God and Truth, which you made in 2019. I mean, this is a vibrantly colorful and elaborate patterned quilt based on an 1899 photograph of the Morris Brown College baseball team in Atlanta. I mean, why did you then want to concentrate on, you know, baseball teams? I think that piece, it's good that I mentioned <laughs> Jackie Robinson earlier, because that was just me perusing in the archives. And I'm like, okay, who are these dapper gents? Like, <laughs> they all look so handsome and they have their uniforms on. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this must be the Negro Leagues. And then I looked at the date, 1899, there were no Negro Leagues at that time. So this is even before there was organized league of Black players in the country. So I looked at the title, 1899, Morris Brown College. I'm like, holy moly, 1899. What was life even like for them at the, the turn of the century? They could not even vote. Legally, I think the laws were there, but they would have been lynched or maybe their houses would have been burned down. Their families would have been harassed. You cannot be a part of this democratic process. You cannot go walk freely and buy a house in any neighborhood. You can't even go to school. Like, you can't shop. There were so many limitations that were put on these guys. But here they are, like, they are chilling, <laughs> you know? You can tell that they feel masterful and even the lounging. And I love that despite all of that, we don't change as people. but that. The human part doesn't change. So that's what attracted to me to it. The guys are super attractive, first yeah. of all. <laughs> yeah, you have a thing with doing a lot of attractive men in your work. <laughs> I mean, it's undeniable dapperness <laughs> that grabs me. Yeah. But I love how these images also just tell such a rich history, you know. So, for example, when I look at this picture, I'm like, okay, I can see these X amount of men. But then actually, once you start uncovering them, then you understand what life was like, what laws were in place. It tells you the history of the world, which is so important, especially in the kind of white dominated museums that don't tell those right stories as well, which I find incredible about your work. The fact that you are educating us and what a gift to the world. But I mean, right now your portrait forever, which you made in 2020 of the late actor Chadwick Boseman is currently on view 
beside the Obama portraits in LACMA right now. Can you tell us about this one? I mean, how did you want to perceive him? Well, that piece, I'm so proud and so happy that it could be at LACMA because it meant so much to me for that portrait of Chadwick to be in a place that makes sense for him. Yeah. I went to school with Chadwick. We both went to Howard. Um, We were both in the fine arts department. But what Chadwick did with his career, you know, just that he he said so much about that he was blackballed in Hollywood for years because he refused to play stereotypical roles. And not that he wouldn't play them, but he would ask directors to add more humanity. So if you're saying that I'm a drug dealer and a thug, I'm already typecast into this role, but why can't I have some humanity behind this role? And why can't this dealer... I don't know, but let's just say that he was educated, but he got off track. The character had to have no father, no mother, just like this this stereotype of this soulless person that we don't need to care about because he doesn't care about himself. And that's not the case. And Chadwick got his role to play T'Challa, the Black Panther. I think he was 40. So... That was a long time. I mean, he did play Jackie Robinson. We're back at Jackie <laughs> Robinson again. <laughs> Here we are again. And I, I just felt that the loss of Chadwick, I needed to say something about it. It wasn't enough to make a post or like a post or say something. And I felt like almost powerless in that. I wanted to express how much he meant to the world and how much promise and the loss of him, how significant it was. And so um, I reached out to his widow. I just wanted to make sure that everything that I'm doing, I want to make sure that that connection is there, especially when you lose somebody in such a tragic way. And it was so soon. I didn't want to traverse in, in ways that could, could have been perceived as like opportunistic. And so I put so much into that portrait just to express what a beautiful man and person he was. And if you see like the red and black robes that he's wearing, well, this this photo was taken from his Met Gala photo. He was wearing Versace. <laughs> Amazing. So shout out, shout out to Versace. And he was wearing all white. And I wanted to change that because in Ghana, red and black is what you wear to the funeral of a young person who's passed away or if the death is tragic in some way, the red and black is to symbolize like this deep anger and pain and sorrow. And I had a brother, my brother passed away at 44. He passed away in his sleep suddenly. So I was sort of equating this lost brother, like my brother or the black brother gone. And I actually made that portrait twice. I have another one that I did. I finished it and I asked my sister to look at it. I didn't tell her anything about who it was, anything that was going on. And then she said, oh, you made a portrait of Zachary. Zachary is my brother. So I was like, okay. I was so much in my head that I melded the two too much. And unconsciously, I made this portrait into Zachary. So I had to 
put that one aside. It wasn't even something to even fix. And I had to start all over again from scratch. But I felt that that was like a good warm up for me too, to like get an energy of Chad, not in my head with my brother, but this brother. And I knew from the moment that I finished the eyes on that one that I was like, yes, this is Chad. Amazing. And what do you want people to learn from your work? All art, it teaches us something. But I hope that they realize that the quilts that they have are valuable. Even handmade clothing that loved ones have made for you. I hope that that also makes them think about what are the other things that my grandparents and parents wanted to impart on me, like either physical or those sayings, like be polite, be kind, be appreciative for what you have. I hope that people will start thinking about what are the things that my grandparents wanted me to have and know, and let me go back and get those things, because it never will be too late or go out of style for that. And also, just on the aesthetic value of it, that maybe go back to making things ourselves. A lot of people started doing that in the pandemic, and it could be physical, like with your hands, making knitting, making bread, but just going back to the things that were the essential us and not forgetting about them. They're important and they make you individual. Well, Bisa Butler, this has been the most incredible conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time to speak to me. I'm sure that so many people will just be so moved by everything and obviously your work as well. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, man. Well, I love Lois Mayu Jones. Yes! I am obsessed from head to toe. Oh my gosh, she's just so great. I want to hear about her life in Paris and Martha's Vineyard and then her travels in Africa. Yeah, I would love to find out when she made that shift from her like Parisian portraits to these graphic, more bold portraits that she did after she went to Africa. I just like to hear about what was her moment of like, yes, I'm shifting now. Perfect. Bisa Butler, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a thrill. Thank you all so much for listening to the 77th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Bisa Butler. It was so fascinating to explore the life and work of Bisa. And for those in Los Angeles, do not miss her work up right now at LACMA. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Manelaj. and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 